Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church guest speaker, Dan Tarr. Well, good morning again to all of you, and... Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And just so that you know, the title is usually the last thing that I make in in creating a sermon. And so uh, what I have here in the bulletin is how to fulfill your New Year's resolution. So I guess that's what we'll do this morning. Uh, That's what we'll work on in Hebrews chapter 10. That's exactly what I would like you to do or to, to help you with this this coming year being the date that it is, I would like to help you with fulfilling maybe some of your New Year's resolutions. I think many people this time of year maybe take some time and evaluate where they are in their life. They ask themselves questions like, what am I struggling with? And what am I not content in? And what do I need to accomplish or or do or fulfill this coming year? And you're not alone. A poll was taken Uh, asking people in the United States, which of the following are you planning on including among your New Year's resolutions? And 37% of Americans said that they would like to eat healthier this year. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I certainly can. And 37% said that they would like to get more exercise. I'm starting to see a pattern. 37% said they would like to save more money. 24% said they would like to get more self-care. For example, getting more sleep, and I'm not sure how eating better or getting better exercise isn't self-care, but that's another thing. 18% said they'd like to read more. 15% said that they would like to make new friends. I guess the old friends just doesn't cut it. 15% said they want to learn a new skill. I guess that kind of comes with making new friends if you think about it. 14% said they'd like to get a new job, and 13% said they want to take up a new hobby. So it sounds like most Americans would like to see something in their lives change this coming year. And maybe some of you can relate to one or multiple of these. And if not, maybe this last percentage is for you. 32% said that they don't plan on making any New Year's resolutions this year. I guess everything is just all fine and dandy for 32% of Americans. But maybe you aren't as concerned about any of these resolutions as maybe you are some spiritual goals. I think many Christians look at the new year as a time to evaluate their lives and and to have a new commitment and an opportunity to grow. I think that can be a good thing. As profitable as this new year's resolution is for many of us, I think it might actually be hard to sometimes define what spiritual growth is or how to do it. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we go into the new year is to help you with that New Year's resolution that we all have to spiritually grow. I hope none of us are done growing, but how does the Christian grow? I think many of us, if I were to ask you what that looks like, I think many of us would think of spiritual disciplines, right? Like reading our Bible, or waking up early to pray and fasting and listening to good sermons and memorizing Scripture and listening to worship music and meditating on Scripture. And all of these are good and effective ways to grow. 
But what all of these have in common is that they all have an individual aspect to them. Yes, we do grow by reading our Bibles. And yes, we do grow by meditating and memorizing Scripture. In fact, those are necessary fertilizer for our growth. John 15, 15, Jesus prayed, sanctify them, grow them in the truth. Your word is truth. So those are essential. But this morning, studying together and worshiping together, I'd like us to study a passage that talks about our corporate growth, our corporate responsibilities, because how we act as believers, believe it or not, does affect our growth as Christians together. How do Christians grow together? How do Christians endure together? How do we become more obedient to our Savior in love together instead of opposed to falling away? And the answer to this message is the message of the book of Hebrews. You see, it was a sermon that was likely preached, or was written likely to be preached. It was written like a lot of other books in the Old Testament. The first half is about doctrine or theology, and the second half was practice, living that theology, that truth out. And it was possibly a letter that was written for the ear. It was written to be read out loud. And when it came, it came with great authority and pastoral wisdom. And it was rich. It was saturated with Scripture. The first ten chapters of Hebrews are about Christ's greatness. To put it simply, His complete supremacy over all things. Specifically, He's the supreme sacrifice and the supreme high priest. And all of this in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews is actually summarized in our passage. This passage, these verses, is really the climax, the high point, if you will, of the book of Hebrews. All of this is summarized in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, that you all have opened to in your Bibles. And this section is the beginning of a new section in Hebrews. You're going to find a different tone from the author in this book, in this sermon we call Hebrews. And it's a mile marker for the rest of this sermon. The pastor now becomes fundamentally practical now that he's stated ten full rich chapters of theology. It's like the author turns the page, takes a breath, And he starts be giving incredibly precise pastoral application. He says, now that I've told you 10 chapters of rich, deep theology, now you need to understand how incredibly practical this all is to the Christian's life. And we still have application to the church for our lives today. He needs you to understand why he's just taken 10 chapters of theology and how that applies to you. Why have you been reading the book of Hebrews and holding on so long to 10 rich chapters of theology that Christ is better? 
What does that mean for you now as a Christian, knowing that? And he's better, he's superior, and he's infinitely above all other ways there might have been for the people to consider when taking the course of their lives. When considering how do I grow as a Christian, he says enduring or growth or sanctification of a Christian isn't just about gritting your teeth. It's not just about keeping your head down. You see, the author of Hebrews, in verses 19 to 21, he's going to summarize what all has been said up to this point in Hebrews, and he says why Jesus is better. And he gives you two reasons why Jesus is better. And these are foundational to our growth. And then in verses 22 to 25, that second half of our passage, he gives you three applications of those two truths. In other words, we can grow together this year in three ways because of two truths that Jesus is better. And he answers the question for us, how do Christians grow together? Not just individually, but what are our responsibilities together because of the gospel? And then verses 22 to 25 give us three applications, three ways that we must grow in grace together. Because growing this year is not just stop sinning so much. It's not just clean up your life and move forward. It's not just get your life together, just grow this year. That is not this pastor's message This message is to demonstrate that all of the truth, all of the theology, ten complex chapters of Christ's nature and his work and person have obvious application even after the day you got saved. All of this still applies to you this year. So first in verses 19 to 21, to make it really simple, we see that Jesus is better in two ways. And in verse 22 to 25, we will see how we must grow together in light of that. Theology and then practice. So let's begin reading together this section, starting in Hebrews 10, verse 19. It says this, read with me. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near. 
You see, in these verses, as we read them together, we see an emphasis on the importance of corporate or or togetherness growth of Christians. And this is so important when you and I live in an age when we live in the church that is often viewed with an individualistic consumer aspect. When participation with the body is so often neglected by those who claim to be Christians when they do not realize that they were saved to become a part of a family of believers. If believers were to recognize that they are a part of a body with Christ as the supreme head, this would unravel so many consumeristic, individual, lone ranger Christians that can be so isolated. And that can be fatal to the growth of a Christian. And becoming like our Savior means that we must love His church. It's important for all of us to hear this, whether you're a young person just learning to love his church and you're examining your parents' faith and you wonder what will your life look like for the rest of your life in the church or, or whether you're a lone ranger Christian who goes from church to church like a spiritual hobo who never really gets involved, always looking for that perfect church but never finds it. I want to help all kinds of people this morning because this text talks to all kinds of people, like those who are weak and those who are strong and those who are mature and those who are immature and those who are committed and those who need to be committed or more committed to the one another's in the New Testament. I want you to know that if you love your Savior, then you must love His church. Ephesians calls Jesus the groom and the church his bride, and we cannot divorce the two. And so we look to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is probably even more important than many of us often give credit to it. It was written to the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Rome, and the church in Rome was so important to the spread of the gospel. It was said that in the ancient world, all all roads led to where? To Rome. In Rome was a strong government. It had military, politicians, education, philosophy. Everything came to and from Rome. There were advanced roads that merchants and military and travelers used. Some of these roads were so developed and and well made that they're still in existence today. And Rome was the sending point of all things in the empire, including the spread of the gospel. And this was a needed stronghold for the Christian church. The most important city in the Roman Empire was also an important city for the church. But when persecution came to the church from Rome, a lot of Christians were tempted to go back to Judaism. These Christians' lives were turned upside down when they converted to Christianity. Rome tolerated Judaism. They recognized Judaism, but they did not tolerate and did not recognize Christianity. And so when persecution was on the, on the rise for just Christians, but not Jews, 
well, these Christians were no longer accepted in the synagogue that they grew up in. Their Jewish families ostracized them. They were rejected. They see all that is happening around them, these Jewish Christians, and they wonder, where is Jesus? And they start to consider, what would the cost be if I just went back to Judaism? If things just went back the way they were, it was so much easier before Christianity. I mean, they'll still be worshiping the same God, right? They'll still be worshiping Yahweh. It's not like they're converting to some false religion where they're, you know, it's not like they're converting to Islam. Like, this is still the same God, right? Why can't things just go back the way they were? Why can't we just do this easy thing to get the government off of our backs? And why can't we go back to something that we already know so well? And then as they're considering this, the cost, is Christianity worth it? Can I go back to Judaism? Would it be all that bad? And they're murmuring amongst each other in the church. What should we do? They finally hear that a letter has arrived. And one day on Resurrection Sunday, when which they would get together with other Christians, likely in a small house church, they finally hear from God. And this is what he said. As the scroll is being unraveled and the famous and well-known prologue of Hebrews 1 is, is read, they hear the words as they're considering these things In verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if they're wondering, is Jesus truly better? They hear these words. And this message is continued through the book of Hebrews, filled with warnings and arguments and points that these people, these Jewish Christians, cannot abandon the faith and return back to Judaism. And it is because Jesus is better. Then from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to verse 18 is one argument that Jesus, the Son of God, this final and supreme revelation is superior to angelic creatures. He's even higher than the angels. And then he turns a corner. He flips the page where we call chapter 3 all the way to chapter 5. And this section is that the Son is not only higher than the angels, but he's also a great high priest. You see, the Gospels make it clear that Jesus was anointed. And the only ones that would have been anointed in the Old Testament are kings, priests, and prophets. And Jesus is all three. So he's 
a superior high priest. The author of Hebrews looks at leaders of the Old Testament that the Jews would have been very familiar with. He brings up Moses and Joshua, who were highly revered and highly esteemed, well-respected by the Jewish community and read in the synagogues. But he shows that Jesus is greater and better than even them. Then starting in 5.11 begins the largest argument in the book of Hebrews. It's, it also would have taken the longest to read. So this, uh, hearing this sermon read out loud, beginning to end, would have taken the longest. So those hearing it would have known that this was, you could say, the core of the apple. This was the heart argument. This is the diamond in the rough. As the scroll is being read and unraveled in front of them, Jesus is not only a merciful, great high priest, but he's also the priest of a different order. He's also the priest of the order of Melchizedek. This section is five chapters long, and Jesus is not from the line of Aaron, like all other priests of the Old Testament, but he's of the line of Melchizedek, who's this shadowy figure in the book of Genesis. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It's not appointed by man, but by God. He is a greater high priest. You see, you cannot read the New Testament, specifically Hebrews, without reading the Old Testament, without understanding the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament is so incredibly important. The author does not unhitch himself from the Old Testament, but he rather builds on what has already been laid for him by God. And the author is looking to angels and priests and leaders and lineage and Melchizedek. And it has all been leading up to this person, Christ, who is greater than all of these things. And we have all of this summarized in our passage in verses 19 to 21 that Jesus is better. And he shows us two privileges that you have as a Christian because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Two privileges that lead to applications and how we grow together. These two privileges come from the gospel. Two privileges that he has just spent ten chapters addressing and explaining. And these two privileges in these verses are foundational to your growth this year. You cannot grow without these privileges. In verse 19 to 20, we see the first privilege. Read with me, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. In these two verses, we see the first of many privileges that we have as Christians that is foundational to your growth this year, and that first privilege is accessibility. Unlimited accessibility to God. And the author calls this the new and living way. It is alive because Christ is alive. It is by his blood that believers have access to the most holy places, it says. 
He says that believers have confidence to enter the most holy places. This is incredible. And I think we often overlook this privilege given to us by Christ, that we have direct access to God because of the blood of Jesus. You have VIP access to God. And we overlook this, but this would have been astonishing to the Jewish Christian reading these words. This was something new. This was something greater that they would have known. Jewish Christians would have been that their, their breath would have been taken from them. Jewish Christians who would have been familiar with passages like Isaiah 6. Isaiah being a great prophet of the Old Testament of Israel that was highly respected. A huge chunk of the Old Testament and much theology came from this man of God who was upheld and esteemed. And this man stood before God and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, who was well-respected and upheld by Jews, said, I am toast when standing before a holy and perfect God, because I am a sinner. Isaiah could not stand to be in the presence of the holy places. And the author of Hebrews says that as believers, we can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. When the Old Testament mentions blood, it's talking about sacrifices. Animal sacrifices needed to be made for the sins of people. And there was this huge barrier barrier between man and God. And even though God wanted to dwell with man as he did in the garden when the way he created us, man could not dwell with God because we had sinned. But to dwell with us and with a limited view of his glory, God made for himself a temple. And the more inside the temple you got, you could say the heavier the holiness of God became. You've heard of the Holy of Holies, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I want you to, I want to show you the weight and the depth and the seriousness that we as believers have confidence to enter the holy places, the most holy places by the blood of Jesus. If you're familiar with the temple of ancient Israel, you would know that the temple was made of several sections, not like rooms, but more so like a target. And the more inside you got, that, that's how the sections were set up. And on the outermost rim, anyone could be in there, was the court of the Gentiles. And then if you went in another section, was the court of women, which was for Jewish women. And then inside there, if you went in another section, was the court of Israel, which was for Jewish men. And then if you went in another section, you came to the court of priests, which was for the leaders of Israel. And of course, inside of there, very selective, was the Holy of Holies. This is where only a single priest, in fact, it was the high priest, could enter, and only very rarely was once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the Holy of Holies was called the place that God dwelled. And the high priest certainly didn't go in there with confidence. He went in shielding his eyes, quickly going about his duty, He went in with bells strapped on him so that those outside could hear him moving about. And when the bells stopped, it meant that God had struck the high priest dead because he went before the presence of God in a flippant manner. 
This doesn't reek of confidence to enter the most holy places. It's not confidence to walk in with a rope tied around his ankle so that if God struck him dead, those outside listening could drag out his body because they can't go in after him. You entered the most holy places with fear and with great care. This was called the most holy priest the holy place. And Hebrews 10 says that once we've been adopted into God's family, we have this same direct access to God, but with never-ending, unlimited accessibility. So much greater. And Hebrews 10.20 says that this was the new and living way. Because the blood of the judicial system with animal sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice was only meant to cover temporarily until a greater sacrifice. So much greater. The blood that would belong to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that John would say, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So much Greater. Christ is now our greater sacrifice. And so we have unlimited direct access to God. And this is foundational to your growth. Secondly, we see how else Jesus is better starting in verse 21. Verse 21 says, And since we have a great priest, over the house of God. Verse 21 says, we have a great high priest over the house of God. This means Christ is our advocate with God. You see, Christ died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, but he is doing something. There is a man before God who is Lord over all, who is seeking your well-being. He is praying for you to his Father that you would persevere in the faith. We have accessibility to God and an advocate with God. And these truths are foundational to our growth. This is why Jesus is better. And the author of Hebrews has just taken 10 chapters in this book, in this sermon, to describe this. It's all about truth about God. And we call this theology. A good understanding of salvation and Scripture and the Savior is necessary for deep spiritual growth. It's not just about your spiritual disciplines. It's not just about quitting bad habits. Spiritual growth must be done in grace. And we learn that when we study deep theological truths about the gospel called theology. We learn from deep theology of the gospel that we must know in order to grow. We have accessibility to God and we have advocacy with God. We have an advocate. And I think that too many young believers struggle to grow because they attempt to divorce 
theology from application, or they attempt to divorce application from theology. They try to get to the commands of the Bible, the imperatives, and they try to get to the stuff that God wants you to do, to have a good and godly marriage and to pursue purity and to live in a government-honoring way and to use your mouth to build others up and to raise children in the fear of the Lord and on and on and on. So many imperatives and so many commands. But you must understand as a Christian that every application and every command in Scripture is rooted in theology. Application without theology is rule-following and legalism. And theology without application is, I don't know, self-righteousness? Certainly not true theology. Theology is applicable. So the author, it's like he's flipping the page. He says Jesus is better. And because of that, this is going to determine everything you do as a believer this year. And he's going to show just how practical all of this theology is that he has just said in 10 chapters and then again summarized for us that we can grow in parents in grace. We can grow as spouses in grace. We can grow in evangelism in grace. We can grow in how we speak in grace. And all of these are highlighted in Scripture as important. But how does the author of Hebrews, what does he say is important and how we must grow together? In light of what we just said was theology, what does that mean for us as a church today? Well, when you read verses 22 to 25, you'll notice something about its grammar. You'll see that it is very plural. We see three implications or three applications of this theology we just learned. Well, how did I get three applications? Well, in verses 22 to 25, each application is marked by two words. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast. And verse 24 says, let us consider. So if your Bible has a let us in verse 25, nope, shouldn't be there because it wasn't in the Greek. <laughs> verse 25 is just an explanation of verse 24. So don't add extra let us. Sorry, that was horrible. Verse 22, let's look at the first one says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Let us draw near with a true heart means that we must pursue God in worship together. We must worship God. And it makes sense that this would be the first application of being drawn near to God by the blood of Jesus. It makes sense that the first application of the theology that you have an advocate with God and you have accessibility to God, the first application is that you must worship Him. It makes sense that this would be the first thing stated, that we get to worship God. And it's so simple, but I think many of us overlook this most of all. The priority of true worship is the object of worship, and that is God. But we so often miss this because we confuse our worship with our preferences. 
We confuse worship with preferences. People engage in worship wars and put their preferences over what does the Bible say God's standard of worship is in order to please him and not myself. Who knew that we had to pursue God in worship instead of our own preferences? A definition of worship is acknowledging that someone or something is greater than me, is worth more and should be obeyed and adored. Worship is the sign in that of giving myself completely to someone or something, I desire to be completely mastered by it in everything. As a church, this is our priority, Hebrews says. And it says, let us draw near. But people, even in the church, often find everything else to worship other than God. What is it that you worship? We must worship God, and this is done, Hebrews 10, with a true heart. It's the same on the inside as it is on the outside, and it is done in full assurance of faith. We worship with confidence. The same confidence that verse 19 talked about. Remember, application is rooted in what? Theology. And so we have confidence because we have an advocate before God. And we have access to him. So we can worship in church with confidence because of the theology that we have advocacy with him. We can enter into the presence of God, into the most holy places, and worship him. It's not that we feel confident, it's not that we're just bold, but that we are confident in entering God's presence to worship him because of the way he has made for us, because of the access he has made himself available. That is the confidence that we have. We are confident in his work. And continuing in verse 22, it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These are words that are taken right out of the Old Testament. The sprinkling was what priests would have done with the blood of animals. It was the sign of substitution of blood needed for sin. A temporary solution, though. Again, reminding the Jewish Christians even further the need of a permanent solution for the covering of sin. A better way that only Jesus provided. Again, restating to these Jewish Christians that Jesus is better than any other way. In fact, he is the only way. That's why John MacArthur says that worship is the church's priority. And this can be done only by those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. That is why the church is made up by those who have been redeemed and purchased and washed by the blood of Christ. That is the church. And it is only the church, those who have been redeemed, that can have confidence to worship God in the most holy places. No other person is worthy unless it is by the work of Christ. And so first we must worship and draw near in true worship together to grow, but also, secondly, we must persevere in hope together. First, we may worship and draw near. Secondly, we must persevere in hope together. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised 
is faithful. The author of Hebrews is telling these Christians to remember the truth that they already know. Probably when these Christians got saved, they were baptized, and they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the author of Hebrews says, don't forget that. Hold on to that. Don't waver. And I think this is a great passage to hold on to when there's a new year coming with perhaps, for some of you, much uncertainty. When you've committed again to read your Bible from beginning to end this year, but you know that it gets harder as the year goes on. It's easy to read your Bible in Genesis and January. It gets more difficult when you get to February with Leviticus or March with Numbers until you get to Nashon, the son of Amimadad, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, and Eliab, the son of Helon, and you're trying to think, what does this have to do with me? I can't think of a better passage to the senior who is graduating high school. I remember living terrified when I was in high school, and my youth pastor would say ridiculous facts like 86% of Christians who grew up in the church never set foot inside of a church again after they graduate, and thinking, what if that's me? I can't think of a better passage for the family and extreme hardship and suffering that they did not see coming and did not think they could have ever prepared for. I can't think of a better passage for the unexpected trial. I can't think of a better passage for the needing to endure. And the author says, don't waver. He says, hold on to the confession of our hope. And this word hope does not mean the opposite of disappointment like so many think. Like, I hope Dan ends early so we can get home. That is not what God thinks is biblical hope. Biblically, the word hope means certainty that God is for you. There's this solid grip when it comes to the word hope to God. And so this hope that these Christians will persevere, it is rooted in what? Is it in their resolution to persevere? Is it grounded in a deeper commitment or in maybe the strength of their own will? No. No, it is not. Because if it was, the second half of verse 23 wouldn't be there. Only if they are grounded in the second half of verse 23. So, why will you stay saved this year? Why can you grow this year? Will it be because of gritting your teeth? No. Will it be because you just try to keep your head down? No. Is it by your own strength and your own will? No. You will grow and you will endure because verse 23 says, He who promised is faithful. This is our great hope. There is a solid grip, but it is not your grip. because it is God's. He is faithful. He will keep our faith. 
He will hold you fast. Why? Because you have accessibility to God and because you have an advocate with God. These applications are rooted in this theology that you have Christ who is your advocate and he is faithful to you. That is how you will grow this year. That is how you can be sure. This is our great hope and he will hold you fast. And the author makes it a point to say that God will keep all of those who trust in Jesus because we have an advocate based on theology. And so first we saw that we can draw near in true worship. And secondly, we must persevere in hope in order to grow together. And thirdly, and this is a powerful one. In fact, I think it's the most powerful. It's so practical to us as a church and in this congregation for us who desire to grow in grace together this year, according to verse 24 and verse 25, this church, we must provoke one another. Read in verse 24, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews says, and God says, if you are a Christian, you have a responsibility. Notice how every time the author refers to someone, as we've said, it's always plural. You have a corporate responsibility to other Christians. Christianity is a we thing, not an I thing. And that's why there's an I, only one I and die. Or three eyes in Christianity, not one. It's the only I jokes I have for you this morning. I didn't have time, sorry. But look at these verses. You, you can't understand them unless you see how plural they are. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 22. It says, which he inaugurated for who? For us. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near, having our hearts, plural, our bodies. Verse 23, let us hold fast, plural. And then let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. If you are a Christian, this is your job. This is your work. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love who? One another. And if you don't have this love for other Christians, if you don't have this love for the people seated around you right now, there is a good chance that you might not be a Christian. I'm not just trying to be mean. That's like three whole chapters of 1 John. So if you loathe going to church or don't go all together or if you're just playing church, like you go there but you're not really there, you should be concerned. Like you should tell someone. We forget that we have been saved unto a family. You have a responsibility to other Christians besides yourself. Christianity is not about you, and it's not about me. Christianity isn't about your sons and your daughters. It's not just about people who are just like you. 
Maybe when you go to church, you, you look to hang out with those and sit with those who are like you. Don't just do that. Celebrate the diversity that comes with church. Don't let you get in the way of worshiping God and serving others. We need each other and our provoking one another affects your spiritual growth. The great and terrible misconception in the church today is the belief that the people around me are not my problem. Where would you be if Jesus said that about you? What would your Sunday morning look like if you were burdened by the struggles of other people? What would you be praying for if you cared about other people's needs other than your own? How would you spend your money, your time, your Saturday mornings, who you talk to at church, what you post on social media? What if everything you did was completely out of concern of other Christians in the church? What would you wear? This takes effort. That's why verse 24 says, let us consider. This has to be intentionally thought out. You've got to think this through. It's not a light thing. If you look around, you'll see that there's all kinds of different people that are here this morning. There's single people that need your help because there's particular struggles that single people have. You could be a potentially great encouragement to that person. There's people who are married to someone who doesn't know Christ and they come week after week by themselves. Have we thought about and prayed about our responsibility to that person? Every time there is a baby dedication is a reminder that we have a responsibility as a church. Have you thought about your responsibility for that young person? What about that young man or that young woman who might have a difficult time keeping a conversation or making eye contact? Or that person who is here and attends in the shadows? Or that student who doesn't really know how to pray or how to read their Bible on their own? I'm telling you, you will not grow as you ought to, and they will not grow as you ought to, as they ought to, if we neglect one another. There are people here, young and old, that need your spiritual giftedness that God has given you and equipped you with. You can have a great spiritual benefit to the people around you. And I'm not talking to brothers and sisters who would love to come to church this morning, but because of health issues or employment issues or something debilitating or illness that want to be there that want to be here but cannot be here I'm not talking about them I'm talking about those who consistently choose something else other than public worship together I'm talking to teenagers and college students and moms and dads and pastors who have a decision to make every week must I go to church This is not a new issue in the church, believe it or not. It's not new because the workplace has changed and it's more difficult since this book was written 2,000 years ago. It's not more difficult to get to church today because church is farther from home. 
or because you can look at your watch and check your email and look at text and there's more distractions. No, I do not think it is more difficult for us to get to church today than it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, I think it was much more difficult to get to church 2,000 years ago. They had, yes, spiritual laziness, but they also had persecution and pressure of family. There was economic concern. The first, think about it, the first 400 years of Christianity, that was a a merchant day. That was a work day. They maybe had off the Sabbath, but Sunday was just the first day of the week of work. Unlike many of us who have Saturday and Sunday off, they didn't have that. And yet, this was a commitment to them. And being hard to get to church isn't something new, and we know that because verse 25 wouldn't be there. Verse 25 says that there are those who neglect to meet together because of what? Bad habits. Just as it was 2,000 years ago, even today, work, school, sports, clubs, and sleep quickly overshadow the need of being together. You can't do all these things. You can't grow like we talked about if you're not here. You can't do it apart from the brothers and sisters that God has given you. To put it simply, a lone ranger Christian is a dead Christian. You miss out on body life if live streaming is good enough for you. To grow as a Christian requires togetherness. And I'm not talking about attendance. I'm not trying to give out blue ribbons and gold stars to all of us that are here this morning because you know that Christianity is much, much more than just attendance. This is far beyond that. I'm talking about us being a body of connectedness. We are a body. We are a flock. And Jesus does not think it is acceptable when one of his sheep is missing. And so he leaves the 99 to go find the one. So being one together is necessary for our growth. And the author says that we must encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day in many of your Bibles is capitalized, capital D. And the day is referring to the day when Christ returns. And you will give an account. And between this day and that day, the church encourages one another. Picking ourselves up together as we grow in grace together, and as we finish the race together. So often when we read that I want to finish the race, it's not just you in a single lane. You're with a crowd also desiring to finish the race together. God has given those around you. There is help and admonishment and counsel. All of these are Forms of this general word used encouragement given to one another, to other believers, as we point each other to Christ. And we are only comforted in this, and we can grow together in grace in this, because we have an advocate with God, and because we have access to God. Because of that, we can grow in grace together. This is the source of our encouragement together. But why are we hesitant to do that? Some people say that the church isn't perfect. I actually just heard this week that some, a friend of mine does not go to church because it isn't 
perfect because there are sinners there, because there are hypocrites there. Couldn't deny that. That's true. This church isn't perfect. My church isn't perfect. John MacArthur, my pastor, isn't perfect, and neither am I, or Pastor Matt, or Pastor Rob, and I say that because they, they would admit that as well. None of the elders here are perfect, but you know what? This isn't a perfect church because there isn't one. But it is the perfect place to grow in Christ. In grace, together. Don't isolate yourself from the body of Christ. How would your life change if you lived this out? If you lived your Christianity serving and loving one another because of a relationship with Jesus Christ, because you have access to Him and you have an advocate with Him. This morning and this week, see the depth of the theology of the gospel that you have accessibility before God and that you have an advocate with God. That Jesus is so much greater. And because of those applications, because of those theology, we have the application that we can grow in grace together this coming year. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word where you have made it so clear to us where we would be without Christ. That we were not only in darkness, but we loved our darkness. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins following the prince of the power of the air and the course of this world following the passions of our flesh that we were wicked and sinful that we had no access before a holy and perfect God when we would stand before you and we would say, woe is me for I am a sinner. And yet because of the blood and person and work of Christ, you have made yourself accessible to us. When we least deserve it, we have an advocate before you, your very son. Lord, because of that, we can grow in grace this year. Because of that, we are encouraged that we have a faithful creator who gives strength to the weary, who we can trust, and who is our hope this coming year. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of guest speaker Dan Tarr on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, all rights reserved.